Welcome to No Royal Road, the end of Techno-Feudal Reason, because both were ending this essay, hopefully, and uh, I think this is going to put the nail in the coffin. Also, reality has kind of put the nail in the coffin on this. Yeah, I, mean, I would say close that. off a little bit about that. Um, so we are in Section 7, Enter the State, where uh, um, we get into... I guess what we're gonna what we should call, um, hey Marxist, let's be realistic. The state is actually an actor in the economy. We knew that a hundred years ago. Now grow up. But yeah, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty succinct way of putting it. Yeah, that that could be the title of the episode. <laughs> um, it's right. like a big. It's just a big reminder of the role that the state has always played, and continues know? to play and will play. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just one of these things when I talk about uh, the role of the state in capitalism, because one thing I will I will say, if you read Capital Volume 1, you can get the idea that the state isn't that involved in the development of capital and Marxism. Think that that's not true. There's pretty clear times when Marx talks about um, the enclosures where he's pretty clear on that. But even if mm-hmm. he wasn't, I will say that's one of the things I'm sympathetic to people like Kalecki about. Like, yeah, the state's always been involved, but it did become more involved in from 1890 to the beginning of the World Wars. Right. And and then it's become even more involved between Fordism and or social democracy, depending on where in the globe you are and neoliberalism and whatever the hell we're in right now. Um, right. And the neoliberalism thing, I think we harp on this every time we talk about it, that neoliberalism doesn't mean laissez-faire economics nope and it, it no, also it. N- never meant that uh, it Forget. also it also hasn't actually meant a shrinking of the state at all either no nope. fact the state's actually expanded its role absolutely so, uh, but anyway that's important for this because i think a lot of the techno neo-feudalist will argue that rentier capitalism that that became dominant during neoliberalism is the whole in is the whole way that all this became you know this neo this neo feudal you know new stage of post neoliberalism um and every now and then there are even people who are friends of the show like stefan hamill will flirt with such ideas like when he says that capitalism is already over <laughs> like, oh okay. yeah that's, <laughs> yeah that that's one of my least favorite positions that a person who is gen- genuinely very intelligent can have just because i can't understand it at all it sounds like you need to get more intelligent then, Jason. Yeah, I guess so. All right. Um, so we, where Morozov begins is talking about Durant's Technonia Feudalism. Uh, and we're going to skip. Durant's critique of what he does, the Californian ideology, makes much of the cyber libertarian orientation of the Magna Carta of cyberspace as foundational text. But he neglects to mention that one of that document's four authors, the prominent investor Esther Dyson, spent years on the board of the National Endowment for Theocracy, America's finest regime change outlet. Save for a few Contarian accounts, among them Linda Weiss's Excellent America, Inc., Innovation and Enterprise in the National Security State, the role of the American state in the rise of Silicon Valley as a global tech, uh, techno hegemon uh, has been greatly understated. I don't... I agree with Morozov here. That's been greatly understated, but I've never understated it. Like, <laughs> well, it's um, it's been greatly understated to the point where, like, I kind of barely have encountered it. it well, it's interesting to me because people will bring it up when they when they want to fight libertarians on the development of the internet in general, its relationship to DARPAnet, the fact that it was turned over to corporations yeah, with also that's Soviet yeah. stuff. Uh, yeah. like th- that's been used as an own for like the you know the dumbass libertarian. I literally have had someone do this to me. Hold up my iPhone and like this is the victory of capitalism. I mean, go. You mean every bit of this is government technology, either funded by the Soviets or the military? But um, <laughs> yeah. But I- I've also paid attention to the investment in like the the, the state investment and the techno feudalism. Uh, what we call techno feudalism, not just because of stuff like uh, the Californian ideology, but also because it was state contracts that shielded a lot of these businesses that we now consider a feudal overlord from having to be profitable enough to get monopsony power. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, like Amazon couldn't have taken over the world 
with its, you know, the way it has, if it wasn't shielded by, by government policy, actually, effectively for 20 years. And between that and, um, you know, rentier capitalists looking for cheap, uh, a cheap but risky investment on, uh, on capital investment, which is a lot of this, those are the two ways that these businesses came to dominate because they, they couldn't have dominated in a classical libertarian economy they would have never developed, which right, I think yeah. people know, but somehow when you talk about techno-neo-feudalism, that part of their brain turns off. Yeah, it's like there's there are two tracks of thought and they, they don't converge for people like at all. Right. I think that like it's because... I won't say for all, for all like genuinely, uh, for all Marxists who are genuinely trying to deal with the subject matter, this doesn't, this doesn't fit. But for everyone who just agrees with the idea that there, there is some sort of neo feudalism, without really thinking too much about it, it's because the left has a tendency to, to go for like the most bombastic, sounding uh, word to describe the thing that they don't like, which is why everybody's a fucking fascist. And which is why, like, I really, really dislike the way capitalism is right now. So it must be something worse. It must be feudalism, right? Yeah. Or, I mean, or, or you'll hear that, like, and I see this all the time, fascism is the American capitalist, you know, true ideology. And I'm like, no, it isn't. It's oh, yeah, really, right. really not. You know, like, America tends toward fascism. Yeah, Just that's yeah. all the time. Most, a lot of MLs and Maoists would say that, would use that regularly yeah. to talk about the United States. That's what a lot of anarchists do, although, you know, that we could have a whole separate conversation on, like, how many anarchists and how many MLs and Maoists actually have the same talking points. Yeah. Uh, without oh, we're, we're all red fascists, according to, like, most Internet anarchists that I've met. Yeah. Oh, well, because we, agree, we believe in some concept of the state. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I don't. But in the interim, I do. But I, I'm, a, I'm an anarchist, too. I just yeah. a very I, I, slow I, anarchist. A very slow anarchist. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. We're gonna get there eventually. Um, when it comes to the state, I might be a reformist, but uh, <laughs> a, reformist, a reformist anarchist. Yeah, reformist <laughs> anarchist. Exactly. I used to when anarchists used to get up at me about that. I used to actually say that to them. I'm just slower than you on this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, in all seriousness, I think I think. I do hear parts of this conversation, but I agree with Morozov that somehow it never connects for people. Like, are, are, like, people will start, I know a lot of people talk about the Californian ideology, like the, the Alfbunga, the Alfbunga gang will also talk about, like, well, oh, yeah. how the left loves the state, but, but yet they don't connect the two together. You know, like this cyber libertarian relationship to the state and the left relationship to the state um, because and I don't actually know why they don't. I, I think one, because it actually hurts their argument that somehow there's a sharp divide between the state and civil society, which I, I don't think is actually that true. So, yeah, right. um, I, I think, I think this all it really comes down to is just that if both of these tracks were ever to merge, the end result would be a different overall ideology. Right. All right. So this may be the case for weaker European or Latin American countries, but all the colonized by American firms in recent years, we can, oh, this may be the case, excuse me, I need to read the, per, the first part of it. All the recent tech lash hysteria about the power of technology companies as giants, robber barons, and one me megalithic big tech block has been entrenched. The notion of the rise of digital platforms has come at the cost of the state's disempowerment. Yeah, that's so stupid. Like, yeah. Um, I don't actually think I would say this argument has actually declined since this was written. Yeah, um, that might be. That might be because I don't hear it as much anymore. All right. This may be the case for weaker European or Latin American countries, all but colonized by American firms in recent years, except for poor Britain, who would love to be colonized by American firms. <laughs> um, but <laughs> that's right. But, but the same can be said for the United States itself, question mark. With yeah, a long time. Yeah. I just I just think there this is one of the actually one of the pushbacks when people are like, well, DHS is taking over the tech industry. And I'm like, they've always been interrelated. Both the tech industry's relationship on DARPA 
And there's literally from the beginning been kind of an open back and forth between tech CEOs and board members and, and um, parts of the literally not just the state, but the security state in specific. Um, And the, and the, it's also not new that it goes back to the 1910s. It goes back to World War One. Yeah. Like, but specifically with, I mean, you you mentioned the example of the iPhone, but like mm-hmm. ever since the invention of the concept of the internet, all the way until the late 1990s, it was almost exclusively a government project. Right. Through, through the Department of Defense, uh, used to connect CIA and FBI offices. You know, right. I mean, yeah. It, I, and everything else about this GPS was uh, was actually developed for missile guidance, um, uh, and the military picks which which firms get access to it or not. And, uh, and on top of that, most other technological innovation, well, especially technological innovation that happens in the university system, uh, is working through grants directly from the federal government. Right, which is which is why you can, which is why like when we talk to MLs or whatever, or, or even our mutual frenemy Doug Lane, um, they'll always go off about well, you know, there's this, and I'm like, I can't think of an NGO uh, that does not take government funding somewhere and thus has ties to and some oversight from the federal government. Right, the fact yeah. they're an NGO actually means that they have that. But right. I will say at this point that. Um, since the end of the Cold War, uh, the amount of risks that are willing to be taken by the federal government in funding projects has declined drastically. Yes. Dramatically. And, and so, ha- it, so has it at the corporate level as well, uh, the private level. Yeah well, so, we've, yeah. yeah, well, that's actually an interesting thing. And I don't know if that's convergent or not. And Morozov, I don't think, talks about it. But let's, mm-hmm. let's go into it just for a second. Um. Neoliberalism and the end of the Cold War converge. They're not directly related um, because, let's be honest, by the end of the 1960s, definitely by the Sino-Soviet split, no one's really scared of the Soviet Union anymore. Which Um, I think is part of the reason that neoliberalism was given free reign is because they weren't scared. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but the reason why neoliberalism developed was not the lack of power of the Soviet Union, it was yeah, a yeah, that's right. crisis. So right. like, like these things happen to use a term that I think may have been ruined by Altisarians, but actually in the strict sense applies here. It was overdetermined that there's just too many different inputs going into this for us to like completely attribute one singular one with the causal chain here. But what that does lead to is we see dramatically less investment. By the time you get the iPhone, I mean, people talk about how much technology there is. The The only major technological innovation we've seen so far is software development. And that is in that like LLM world. And even that, as impressive as it is, is actually based off of different things that have been going on for 30 years and only seem to have been really pushed out because of uh, the strength of, of coding labor. Right. Yeah. yeah. That, we talked about this a lot on the, the last episode right. um, that all, all of our seemingly just grand technological innovations that have happened within the past 10, 15, probably 20 years have just been rearranging coding languages. Yep. All right. So, uh, Let's go into this next part of the section. So, uh, um, Morozov talks about Eric Smith and like literally the Defense Innovation Board um, and the way that like Google has direct relationship with DARPA in both directions. Um, he mentions Palatier, which was co-founded by Peter Thiel, but is definitely integrated with the U.S. surveillance state. Uh, he mentioned Zuckerberg, you know, trying to make the argument that breaking up fa- Facebook would embolden Chinese technological giants and lead to this backdoor competition, which we saw almost come to the head and stuff like the the Risk Act. But interesting, like everything these days with the U.S. government, even from the right, that seemed to have been a 20 second panic that even got me involved and then disappeared. So, oh, yeah, like if, immediately, too. Yeah. It, it, it's 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 been a 
you know, it's had some weird downstream things with states trying to enact laws that probably are in breach of the, um, the commerce clause, but that's about all we've seen from that actually in the last few months. So, but yeah, anyway. and the hysteria has just died down entirely. Right. So, could this lack of attention, I'm reading Bruno now, because this lack of attention to the constitutional role played by the state and the consolidation of American tech industry be the result of the analytical Brennerian framework of capitalism that seeks to deduce its laws of motion by observing it in action? Is it impossible to graph the ascendancy of American tech industry if one brackets out the Cold War and the War on Terror? Mm-hmm. Which, is, as a side note, that seems weird that a political Marxist would do that. Yeah, it seems right? like an abandonment of what political Marxism even is. Right. Like, like I could see you throwing this at like classical Marxists versus Altusarians or something, but they don't weirdly bracket out the war on terror and cold war the way that the Brennerian analysis is like, even when they kind of try to break it up and like Brenner seven thesis, I think his political capital thesis like backdoor tries to walk some of this back and a little bit talk about the cold war, but then he like brackets out what counts as working class politics in ways that like the civil rights counts as working class politics, but the workers movement of the thirties doesn't. And, um, I mean, interestingly, I think he might have a point on the workers movement of the thirties, but I don't understand the civil rights movement by that claim. Like it's just, but beyond that, it does seem like the war on terror and the cold war just like not mentioned at all in that framework. Like, like, Oh, political capitalism's new, but the, the Fordism itself is totally dependent on all these state interventions during the cold war and it being done instead of through explicit social democracy, through tax codes and encouraging um, public private partnerships, but it did the same thing. And it was definitely at the behest of the military that a lot right. of that happened. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yep. So <laughs> so if one brackets out the Cold War and the War on Terror, skip this part, as extreme, well, with their spending and surveillance technologies, as well as the global network of American military bases, or even, just as a side note that even Morozov doesn't mention, the fact that we had backdoor military Keynesianism through the spreading of basis in the poorer parts of the country until the last 15 years. And one of the reasons why the heartland has been abandoned is the military Keynesianism went away. Exactly. Right. It was what Tony Cliff called the, uh, uh, was it the permanent arms economy? Yeah. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> right. We still have the permanent arms and co- economy, but it's no longer spread out to kind of buoy up. Yeah, the South and the Midwest and the West, like like, and I, I come from an area where it was literally supported by, like, its entire economy was basically dependent on uh, not from being soldiers, but from servicing things that were servicing the military base. Yeah, where we're from is the largest naval air station in the United States. So it's yeah, like, it's it's like one of two significant like long term employers, and the other one is the oil industry. Yeah, like our you basically, if you want a good paying job, you either go work and are a civilian. You either go work at the uh, Army Depot fixing helicopters, which is on the Navy base, interestingly enough, or yeah. you go work in the uh, uh, in the oil fields, right. not oil fields, uh, the refineries. So, yeah. like in Georgia, what you know, a lot of the central and southern parts of Georgia, you don't even there's no refineries, there's no extractive economy really. So all you had was the military base our industrial production that was tied to that or to the cigarette industry and the cigarette industry went away. So, um, uh, well, in the seventies, there were papal and te- paper and textile mills, the lowest forms of industrial capitalism, but like they went away too, to India probably. So, um, yep. or, or to Bangladesh. So I think, I, I think like, okay, we're not, you know, not even talking about the global network of military bases, but we're not even doing an analysis of like the seventies and eighties in its relationship to military, to, to, to the, the militarization of the militarization of American society um, as part of an economic project to offset uh, private, uh, semi-privatization. Like, 
and which is abandoned over time increasingly with survey says the end of the cold war right so like not not seeing that and talking about techno neo feudalism tells me that you had a very facile understanding of what the american capitalist economy was which really makes me doubt that a lot of these people had any any understanding of it in the first place which also makes me think that maybe academic marxism was a mistake. However, then I see non-academic Marxism today, and then I start feeling good about academic Marxism, because that's even worse. Um, but well, anyway. I wouldn't go so far as to say Marxism was a mistake. I think Marxists are the mistake. <laughs> <laughs> we need uh, to dissolve the people and elect a new one. <laughs> yes, what? kind of like Pantera. Yeah. I like Pantera, but I don't I like Pantera say, fans. You know, I didn't say Marxism was a mistake, but I do think that, like, I, as much as I complain about academic Marxist dealing with the Marxist groups that have developed in the lieu of the sectarian left and post DSA, including anti DSA as in response to them, has yeah. just illustrated to me that, like, however bad I thought it could get, it seems to always be able to get dumber. Yeah, like, That's exactly. Yeah. Um. So much so that often, and I will say this, to talk intelligently about certain topics on Marxism, I have to go to non-Marxists to do it. Oh, right? yeah, for sure. Um, when one can make the mistake today when the, quote, rise of China and climate catastrophe are coming to occupy the system-orienting role once played by the Cold War, if so, can we also forget that comprehending the rise of what have been dubbed asset manager capitalism, which seeks to delegate the state's task of fighting climate change to the likes of Blackwater, Vanguard, and, and State Street? From the Brennerian vantage point, any systemic intervention by the state into the ongoing operations of capital may, be, may appear as an example of political capitalism, which is his big category in that seventh thesis is it's so fucking dumb. But <laughs> like, it really I, is. Like, I read that again, and like, I read it more sympathetically after our, our first discussion of it. And I was like, Oh my God, it's even vaguer and dumber than I thought. Um, <laughs> it's actually bad in ways that I didn't foresee it being bad. <laughs> um, rather than a properly functioning economic capitalism driven by its own laws of motion for, for Brenner himself, the long-term stagnation of the U S economy in conditions of global manufacturing over capacity has led powerful elements of American ruling class to abandon their interest in productive investment and turn instead to the upward redistribution of wealth by political means. This uh, and the strangely left and right appear to converge. After all, detecting the corrosive effects of political capitalism everywhere is more typical of the liberal and neoliberal economics concerned as they are with rent sinking by public officials and the resurgence of personalistic networks intervening the operations of capital. It was a, it was the kind of concern about political rather than economic capitalism that gave rise to public choice in the fetishization of anti-corruption by Chicago economics such as uh, Luigi Zingales, uh, Durant himself repeatedly engages with Moradad Vahabi, a public choice scholar, citing him favorably on predation. I also saw this in the analytical Marxists picking up a whole lot of this framework themselves um, and trying to mix uh, Weber in with their view of um, class, which does a lot of this too. Because um, it actually adds public choice theory and uh, cartelization and corruption into their analysis. And I'm not saying that you don't have to deal with cartelization and corruption, but I think the way they do it actually makes it makes more concessions to the liberal side of things than they even realize. I don't think I know enough about public choice theory. Mm. Like, I mean, I don't I don't think I would even be able to recognize it if it was like not explicitly stated. Right. Perhaps it is now time to ask whether the Brenner-Wallerstein debate is in for some definitive resolution. Arguably, the unresolved ambiguities of the debate have created an analytical and intellectual opening through which the techno-neo-feudalist thesis can now appeal plausible to create young Marxist econo Marxian economists like Durant. After all, it is only the outgoing expropriation, the political power that presupposes it cannot easily be reconciled with exploitation-driven accounts of capitalist development. Uh, one needs the extraneous concept like Harmi's accumulation by disposition, Velvin's predation, Veliconi's cognitive rent, or even Zuboff's extraction of behavioral surplus. I don't know what the fuck that means. I get the impression um, that when he says perhaps it's time to uh, ask if the debate is is in for some resolution, 
if what he really means is like, for fuck's sake, this time, you know? Right. Well, I also think like one of the things I can say is there are elements of the Wallerstein side of this that I'm not actually as sympathetic towards. Like uh, the, the idea that decoupling would be inherently progressive um, and stuff like that. I think uh, we can argue about that. I also think um, Wallerstein and Arigi have some problems themselves and how they actually view what's going on within nations. Although Wallerstein is a little better on it than a lot of people presuppose. Um, anyway, currently the only way to fit exploitation and expropri- expropriation into a single model is to argue that we need more of a, more of an expansive concept of capitalism itself, as Nancy Fraser has done with some success. Uh-oh. <laughs> Whether Fraser's account, which is still being elaborated, will succeed in accounting for the broader geopolitical and military considerations remains to be seen. But the thrust of the argument seems correct. While in the 1970s it may have been possible to analyze unfree labor, racial and gender domination, and the unpriced use of energy as well as unequal terms of trade that resulted from the core siphoning off cheap commodities from the periphery, such as external to the exploitation capitalist, the exploitation from capitalist system. This is no easy task today to disaggregate that. I mean, um, such arguments would be, would have increasingly been put into question by some stellar empirical work by historians of gender, climate, colonialism, consumption, and slavery. Uh Oh, I'm seeing, I'm seeing Morozov sneak in some, some stuff you yeah see what you, I'm saying? You, you look very worried like with each word you look a little bit more concerned well because he's not actually citing which historians of x he's citing with just saying that there is stellar empirical work done but i'm not going to tell you which ones right expropriation was given its dues signifying compli- uh, complicating the political the analytical purity which capital's laws of motion could be formulated jason moore uh-oh a student of Wallerstein and Giovanni Arrighi has formulated a new consensus when he wrote, capitalism thrives on islands of commodity production and exchange. It expropriates oceans of potentially cheap natures outside the circle of uh, outside the circuit of capital, but essential to its operation. I'm not. I, this holds, of course, not only for cheap natures. There are many activities and processes to appropriate, but also these oceans are broader than more suggest. Oh, thank God. Okay. <laughs> One major concession that political Marx, Marxism would probably have to make is to abandon its concept of capital as a system marked by fundamental separation between the economic and political. That the economic needs uh, need supplies the immediate compulsion, compelling the workers to transfer surplus labor to the capitalist, in contrast with their fusion under feudalism. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, there's yeah, <laughs> again, it's like, it's like when he says one concession that political Marxism would probably have to make, it's like, he, it's like what he wants to say is like, for fuck's sake, one concession that they have to make. Right. There were certainly good reasons to point out that the advance of democracy stopped at the factory gates and that the rights guaranteed in the political arena did not necessarily eliminate despotism in the economic sphere. Of course, this is in this much in this presumed separation was fictitious. As Ellis Milken Woods argued in her seminal article on the issue, it was bourgeois economic theory that abstracted the economy from its social and political con- content. And capitalism itself that had driven the wedge separating its essential political issues. This is what I don't get. Political political Marxism under Wood actually doesn't do what uh, what Morozov is accusing it of, but apparently it does now. That's weird. Like I would actually need to I would actually need to study Brenner's development post the 1990s to see where that changes because uh woods is where i got the whole idea that uh that the bourgeois economic separation between the economy and, and its social and political content was largely fake she's one of the people who says that like um the base superstructure stuff is a feedback loop and was always a metaphor and you can't use it analytically like, yeah <laughs> um such as power to control production and, uh, and appropriation and allocation of social labor from the political arena, displacing them to the sphere of the economic. True socialist am- a- emancipation would require full awareness that the separation between the two is artificial. Absolutely. And I guess I'm just arguing that, like, I guess this was my pushback on political capitalism, 
was that I thought political Marxism already did that. But apparently I just misunderstood Brenner. I mean, I got the impression when I read that Brenner, um, that one essay with the like seven points or whatever, that he was fundamentally reorienting and just not admitting it. Because right. Because really, like, it seems as though, like you said, it's it's like this was already covered before. Let's get to uh, Morozov's critique of Woods. Yeah, Woods' overall account painted a picture of coercion of the capital that was too simplistic. The integ- uh, This is him quoting uh, Woods. The integration of production and, and appropriation under capitalism, she wrote, represents the ultimate privatization of politics. To the extent the functions formerly associated with coercive political power, centralized or parcelized, are now formally lodged in the private economic sphere as functions of private appropriating class relieved of obligations to fulfill larger social purposes, end quote. On this view, the scope of the purely political with regards to the purely economic was quite limited. It consisted primarily of safeguarding property rights. That the political was always instrumental in securing cheap supplies of energy and food, of unfree labor and minerals, of knowledge, and perhaps even eventually of data. This very condition of the possibility that made the expanded conception of economic possible was left unsaid for obvious reasons. None of these... None of these things had direct bearing on exploitation. True. Yeah, I think Morozov is an anti-Marxist, actually, guys. But he's, like, very secret or, like, very uh, sly about it. Like, it's not overt. It's barely offensive. Right. However, if the political was so instrumental to the constitution of the economic, one might as well ask what is gained by presenting capitalism as a system that keeps the political and economic apart. Um... That capitalists and their ideologues talk this way is one thing. To the extent in which there is an, an accurate description of the a- actually occurring under capitalism, the thesis of Wood's article is another. Here is one reminded of Bruno Latour's quip about modernity speaks with a forked tongue. It says that science and society are pulled apart, but its strategic confusion is precisely what allows it to hybridize them so productively. Right. It may be that the story of the political and the economic under capitalism is very similar. And this... I guess I guess you could accuse Brenner for sure and maybe Woods of actually naturalizing the very thing and, and, and some classical Marxists too, frankly, of naturalizing the very thing they were critiquing. Oh yeah. Um in this respect, it is easy to see why Brenner was never impressed by Harvey's coinage of accumulation of by dispossession. In so much as the concept referred to redistribution ac- uh, accomplished by markets and violence alike rather than production, it could not graduate from primitive to regular capitalist accumulation, at least in Brenner's understanding of the term. However, given all historical evidence that piled up in the past 40 years, especially during the 2008 crisis and the COVID pandemic, pandemic, it has become harder even for Brenner to bracket out redistribution as something extraneous to actually existing capitalism. This amount it's, it's kind of impossible, really. But, right. Yeah. yeah. This but it, amount. But it always has been. Right. Yeah. This amounts, uh, the amounts involved, many trillions of dollars are just too struggling. I, I'm going to just add in this, though. Some of that's not redistribution. Some of that's literally just currency creation. Yeah. Yeah. Like. The amounts involved, many trillions of dollars are just too staggering. He became to write in. In the escalating plunder, his 2020 text on the COVID bailouts, what we have had for a long epoch is the worsening of economic decline made by an intensive, intensifying of political predation. The word political, a hint that for Brenner, the normal process of capital accumulation is failing, makes a frequent appearance in that essay. Lacking the framework for, for, for bridging redistribution and exploitation with some broader account of capitalist accumulation, Brunner has one move left. The positive capitalist dependence on the state-driven upward reproduction of wealth is moving capitalism away from itself towards an economic form apparently shares with the central feature with feudalism. This would retain the purity of the original model the honorary title of capitalism, which could be reserved for one of its impressive regimes in which the accumulation can occur through innovation rather than predation or dispossession, but only at the expense of unleashing all sorts of secondary analytical and political problems. The weaknesses of Durant's arguments are, to some extent, the product of the the unresolved tensions in the Brenner-Wallacine debate. The ultimate irony here is the best evidence that accumulation via innovation is like capitalism itself, still very much alive, can be found in the same technology sector that Durant writes off as feudalist and rentierist. When we see, we see as much when we abandon the overdetermined micro narratives of these frameworks, but 
be it Harvey's neoliberalism as a political project, which it wasn't, thank you, or or their their Siloni's cognitive capitalism, thinking of technology firms the way Marx would have likely thought about them, that is, as capitalist producers, surely there's better results. And I'm going to actually talk about this for a second, because there's something that I realized from a from a, a follower on Twitter of mine, actually, that uh, um, real commodities and abstract commodities are, are hard. Um, on the second, it's hard to detangle rents because under English common law, you can sell and trade patents and copyrights as commodities, hmm. which means that under English law in specific, there is a way that in which what is normally related purely to domination, a.k.a. patent enforcement monopoly right, can be bought and sold as a commodity on the free market. Hmm. And that is different from European law, particularly in places like Spain, which all of a sudden makes a lot of stuff um, like... When when is something a rent and when is something commodity? Well, when you're not dealing with real, aka physical, tangible commodities, but things like IP commodities or service commodities or whatever, that the rules are different because it has a dual form, both as a commodity and as a rent simultaneously, depending on how you're looking at it from the standpoint of law. Yeah, that seems to really trouble people. Yeah, the, the, it seems like, like even in Morozov, I didn't see that brought up. And I'm like, that, I mean, he kind of brings it up, but he doesn't talk about that legal uh, capacity for it. And, the, the, yeah. and that Marx realized that. Like, so, so for example, just like a teacher can be a productive worker, and productive here means productive to capital surplus, when they're working for a private school, but a deduction from social surplus, I mean, for general surplus, capital surplus when they're working for a public school and be the same person the the same relation like whether it's a rent a commodity depends on what you're doing with it at the time and and i think that really fucks with people because it means that easily labeling these things as one thing or the other in a clear analytic isn't always possible depending on how you're looking at what it's doing at a particular instance at a particular time. Well, right. It's not only not always possible, but it's like, it seems like it's never helpful. Like it doesn't clarify anything, although it does make things much less clear. Right. So in the meantime, Marxists would derail to acknowledge that dispossession and expropriation have always been accumulation of, have always been constituent of accumulation through history. Uh, Yeah. Don't we already acknowledge that? (laughs) Well, very few actually do. That's the problem. Oh, Perhaps the luxury of employing only the economic means of value extraction and, pro- and properly capitalist core was always due to extensive use of inter-economic means of value extraction t- on the non-capitalist periphery. Yep. What non-capitalist periphery? I mean, Rosa Luxemburg wrote, wrote about this like a lot, but it was also like it was a disappearing part of the world. So it's, yeah. it hasn't existed for a very long time. But that's when, a, a part of her like a I don't remember the essay. Whatever her, whatever essay it is, that that's like a central argument. One thing I'll give Wallerstein is Wallerstein would not say it was a non-capitalist periphery. He would say it was a was a periphery. And I will also give Wallerstein this other credit. Uh, unlike many of his fans, he does not think the primary division is national because he also talks about cores and periphery within the core. So, yeah. for example, there's periphery areas of the United States, right? Well, like um, like Mississippi. Relative yeah, to Miss- like Mississippi, Alabama, Michigan, actually now the yeah, lot of yeah. the upper Midwest, uh, re- etc. In one sense, Brundell's one-time description of capitalism as infinitely adaptable is not the worst perspective to adopt. Yeah, that's this is my answer. This is why I'm not a final crisis theorist. Well, yeah, is Same. I think I think there is a tendency to the rate of profit the fall. And also capitalism's really good and brutal at adopting to it. Yeah. And while it seems to adopt to it like with less gains every time, that it's still figured out a way to shift its 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 political uh, management. Or let me yeah. rephrase that capitalists, not capitalism, have figured out a way 
by co-opting with the state to shift its political management in ways that makes it very, very hard to defeat. Now, I know Brundahl is not a Marxist, and uh, thus he's like the the world systems theorist that people are most uncomfortable with. But I've always find him to be the – in some ways, I find him the most useful of them. Um, well, right. Like we've been talking about late-stage capitalism for a good almost 200 years. <laughs> and, the, and the and the final crisis of capitalism since the first world war and uh, uh, well, uh actually i mean marx wrote about the final crisis of capitalism in 1850 <laughs> oh yeah um, i guess that's true yeah, well since since uh capitalism began in the northern italian city states in the uh you know high middle ages yeah, sure. This is the late stage of capitalism so, by comparison. <laughs> so one thing I'm going to d- d- bring in here, and then I'll finish this last thing. I think Morozov doesn't. That I think Marx himself is ambivalent on this because he saw that prediction fail, on, you know, under his immiseration logic in the 1850s, and then that's when he really k- kicks up the revision of the political and economic manuscripts, the creations of capital. Uh, uh, right, of capital yeah. volume two and three, the revision of capital volume one, um, which he actually does finish, uh, et cetera. Like, like it really does seem to be partly in response to him being wrong about the final crisis of capitalism in the 1850s. Um, because I think he thought initially that basically the bourgeois revolutions uh, and 1848 would win, and then you go immediately into oh, right, the duration yeah. situation, and then immediately into the end of capitalism. Yeah. And I don't think he thinks that by the time of the first international, because it doesn't make his actions make any sense in the first international. But there's also not like any Althusserian clean break where I can say that there was a clear shift, because he didn't fucking finish writing anything. <laughs> Well, and it wasn't it wasn't a, like a break. It wasn't like he woke up one morning with this new realization. Like it's a br- it's a break in the sense that like he changed his mind about some things, but it plays out over like the rest of his life. Right. Um, but I mean, I think that's where this like the relationship of the state to capital in Mar- is weird because it's actually weird in Marx, too. Like I- I'm willing to yeah. say that it's like unclear in Marx. I mean, I'm always I've always been kicking my ass that like he gave up on, you know, originally capital was supposed to be like five volumes. And eventually it was actually supposed to cover capital estate development. And Marx just kind of gave that up. Yeah, it's like, really too bad. How Draper talks about that in his Mark, Karl Marx's theory of revolution. That originally, there was supposed to be a theory of state and all this and we don't get it like. Yeah, that's bullshit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's fair. A great detriment too. like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of that. It does lead to like you know we have hints of it in his like arguments with anarchists and stuff that the that he and I guess and this way I actually will go against our cosmonaut friends and say that this is why state and revolution is important and why Lenin was right in it uh, because Lenin actually does pick up on some things from Marx that I think are pretty clear um, about his his notion of like you can't have. Uh, unclassed law, you can't have unclassed state, you can't have an unclassed standing army, like right, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, alright, but it does not, okay, but it does not conti- adapt continuously and when it does, it is not given to Oeper's retribution tendencies went out over productive ones, it may be well be all this is exactly how how much of today's digital economy operates this, of course, is no reason to believe that techno-capitalism is somehow nicer, cozier, or more progressive regime than techno-feudalism. By vainly invoking the 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 latter, we risk right-washing the, for, the former. Bam! Which thus ends um, this essay. But I actually think I actually think it's interesting. Okay, on one hand, I actually do think early capitalism was progressive for Europe for Europe in certain ways. Yes. I'm not one of these people who thinks that even current capitalism has no benefits. On the other hand... I'm one of those people. <laughs> on the other hand, I do think that... Um, Clearly, partitioning partitioning the current techno feudalism is kind of a way to avoid a decadence theory. Yes. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, 
And I think people don't want to, ironically, they're more willing to pick up techno feudalism, which is also something as, as Morozov points out, like by the right, because they want to avoid decadence theory because it's also liked by elements of the right. So it's, it's, it's like many things. And I don't think Morozov just is willing to come out because he's very careful. This really come out and say this, but so much of this is driven by like, just responding to your political enemies in, in ways so that you don't have to admit something. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think there's a whole lot of that going on. Like, I, I mean, I hate to think that so much of Marxist theory is that petty, but I, I, I actually do think a lot of Marxist theory is that petty. So, <laughs> well, definitely well, especially lately. It, yeah. Well, especially in adherence to theories, because like, I think a lot of adherence to people's pet theories is petty. Mm-hmm. So um, let's let's reframe. Even though I vaguely accuse Morozov of being slightly anti-Marxist, and I think I do think there, like his, I do think his fight. Like one of the things I find interesting is he's actually pre- seems to be asserting that political Marxists are are actually classical Marxist, and they're not. So that's one thing I do want to point out that like, like if you ask Neil Davidson, if political Marxists are part of the classical Marxist canon, he would say no. Yeah, they would definitely say no. That they're kind of a response to analytical Marxism and Maoism and stuff like that. Uh, you know? Right. Um, so what do we make of this? Uh, ultimately? I mean, other than we all agree that techno feudalism is not a thing and that capitalism <laughs> is still around, but what do we make of all this? I mean, particularly now that these debt markets have fallen have fallen through since this was written, and like right. we've, we've watched these people pivot into a completely different direction on how they're trying to be profitable. I mean, I think so. Very, uh, there are a few things. The first thing is that I would definitely recommend this article mm-hmm. to anybody who's engaging in this discourse, and I guess that I guess that would mean everybody because everybody should be engaging in this discourse. Um. But also, I, I like where you what you said a, a little while ago about the necessity of a the the way that if you if you just reject really any of these conclusions, then you have to then go into decadence theories as well. So I would say read this and then also start reading decadence theories. Yeah, and there's multiple decadence theories. Yeah, like, there are, and most of them are. Uh, um, incredibly teleological in their outlook they they have they contain an an element of inevitability right like most most marxist decadence theories are like ones that uh deal with the inevitable collapse of capitalism and uh i think that one of the things that we decided whenever we did our our dive into decadence theory is that we agreed with like elements of all these different theories from the you know the the Trots to the Luxembourgists to the Council Communists—they all have good elements within them, but we reject that inevitability portion. Right. I yeah, mean, I, I still think that Samir Amin is probably the single best, but like, not the only one, and not the only one that you should read. But maybe you should start with Re- the Revolution or Decadence, published in Monthly Review, like four right. years ago. Yeah. Part yeah. of that, though, is used to justify his like third worldist view. Yeah. So that is like the portion of it that I reject. There's no one good place to look for a, 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 a holistic, hundred uh, percent correct decadence theory. I think that like at some point someone should write something about this, but uh, yeah. I, I do like Brett Christopher's rentier capitalism a little more, even though I don't entirely agree with it. Cause it makes it like a, like also like Michael Hudson, it makes it sound like rentier capitalism comes outside of industrial capitalism. And I don't think it does. I think it, I think it is one of the signs of decadence actually within capitalism writ large is that industrial capitalism starts hitting real commodity problems and other things have to emerge and those other things are parasitic on other parts of the economy and that they don't necessarily lead to reinvestment. Right. But as uh, I guess, while I'm not a Maoist third worldist at all, I guess we do have to um, deal with the overexploitation of the periphery. And the reason mm-hmm. why I say that's more viable than, say, Maoist third worldism 
is one of the things that I've always said is like, well, labor aristocracy makes no sense from a national perspective, but there are labor aristocratic um, sectors of capital, but even those are, are exploited. They're just exploited less because they have more yeah. bargaining power because of wherever they are in the economy at one particular time or another. Right. Like it's not that they're not exploited. If they were not exploited, they would not be profitable. Like well, I don't, I don't wholly reject the idea of a labor aristocracy. What I reject is that the finality that is, uh, that is generally included within that, that the idea that the, these elements of the working class are from for now and for through all eternity, not able to be radicalized and will, and are not revolutionary and cannot be revolutionary. Yeah. It I seems to be kind of a theme, you know, yeah, rejecting sure. the finality of any simple solution and simple analysis. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be it's, it's almost as though the, the, the theory is like an evergreen, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so on that note, we, we can talk about uh, that. I guess, I guess the one thing we can all come down on is despite the fact that I'm willing to listen to severe crisis, um, you know, Grossmanite Marxist and I have a close to Grossmanite opinion on the, the, the profitability problem. Where I differ from Grossman, and I've said this for years, is that I think Grossman actually underestimates the fact that not just that they're, you know, counter tendencies, but that capitalists find new counter tendencies that we don't see all the fucking time. And right. so whenever we try to like, predict the final end of capitalism we get blindsided by something be it war be it um capitalist reorganization in response to a pandemic and a systemic shutdown be it because i do think COVID actually stalled off a recession oh yeah like, definitely. oh um, absolutely and if you and talk I, to some uh conservatives they'll say that that's why there was a, such a panic over it right absolutely and in order I, you to know, do so it was one of yeah. the weird things is, is, is every now and then like conservatives might have a have a uh, kernel of a point, but for like stupid reasons. Yeah, exactly. This is like, one of them. <laughs> like to, to conservatives, uh, the Democrats uh, allowed for the release of a virus and then played up how played overplayed how bad it was going to be in order to uh, trick people into whatever you know. And yeah, despite uh, the fact that like the Chinese government wasn't cooperating with the U S government and their guy was in power when it started. Yeah. <laughs> like all well, the American conservatives thing. are real, real, real dumb. Uh, we should, you know, I have a non-Marxist theory, theory about hegemony that I, that I will bring up to you guys. Uh, the hegemony itself is decadent. And because, because that kind of power bestowed upon a nation leads to all kinds of provincial insularity, including not learning other languages because there's mm -hmm. just no incentive to, um, that it actually makes the kind of the hoi polloi status of people in a hegemon dumber than they would be otherwise. Like, it's not because they're stupid. It's it, like, you know, Amer American conservatives aren't stupid because like the American working class is stupid or Americans are stupid. Right. Americans are occurrences are stupid because they're provincial and they're provincial because of the because of the power attributed to a hegemon. And I say that because I think about like the, the end of Roman of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. You go back and read late Roman intellectuals. They're fucking dumb. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, yeah. I mean, and if, look at the, the British Empire during its decline as well. It's the same exact thing. Right. The French. Yeah. Like, like, and to me, this is, this is one of the times where I'm like, yes, I think most laws of history are justified by their modes of production. Some, however, are structural deeper than that. Mm -hmm. And hegemon leading to a slightly dumber populace is one of them. Like, yeah. I don't think that's just uh, another one that I think is controversial that I think Bonapartism in particular to capitalism but Caesarism is not. And Caesarism emerges when things get complex and like your oligarchs get too uppity. Yeah. And, uh, and that happens in capital and thus manifests in a capitalist form and Bonapartism and its various evolutions or devolutions in the forms of fascism, FDRism, yeah. Keynesianism. 
Um, <laughs> all, all the different ways you want to dress up corporatism. Yeah. 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 Um, which were which were a way to deal with the declining profit rate. Right. Uh, Claire Matei's book is really good on this, actually. So is Putin a Caesarist? Uh, I mean, a Caesar figure. I do think he's I actually do think that, like, I don't think Bonapartism is just dominant in the U.S. I think it's dominant everywhere. And it actually hit the U.S. a little late. Yeah. This time around. Right. Because we started seeing Trump like figures in the aughts in Europe. And like Like everyone's going to Bolasconi. uh, Orban, he's he pre- he predates Orban, well. Erdogan, um, Erdogan, yeah, yeah. There was an attempt at it uh, in in Greece to just you know the Greece political establishment is so fucking weak, um, you know. But and there's well, a also, of, also Le Pen, you know, yeah, Le yeah, Pen, yeah Le Pen. for sure. Also Macron himself, yeah, is a Bonapartist figure, like almost quite literally, like. Yeah. Um, Sarkozy was kind of a Bonapartist figure. Well, yeah, actually, French politics has been pretty solidly framed by Bonapartism for at least twenty years. Oh yeah, like well, I mean, uh, going back the to the Gaulle, or maybe even to the Gaulle, like maybe yeah. modern French Putin. politics has only been that. Yeah, actually, it has only yeah. been that. Like Leon Bloom, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's, good point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they kind of invented the fucking category. Yep. So. Yeah. Um, uh, Bonapartism just gets more and more silly, but it's still the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, this is one of the things that I, there's two trends in Marxism that annoy me. One is like st- a state absolutism a la, I think, kind of the Althusserian school, which I think comes out of French notions of politics as well as, you know, basically Stalinism. Um, but I also think the, the the American notion, which is the other, the American British notion, to completely believe that the bourgeois actually succeeded in separating the political and economic, mm-hmm. is kind of yeah. our mistake. But the French mistake is is. But what's weird is in like American and Canadian left academia, people hold both views simultaneously. Well, I mean the the socialist movement around the world is still basically divided between um, three camps. And there's still just the the Lasallians and whatever the whatever the various kind of like utopian s- strands were, and then also Marxists. And Marxists are by far the smallest of the three. Uh, yeah, I was actually pointing out to someone that like that like uh, I actually miss real reformism these days because most people don't even they can't even tell the difference between reformism and tailism. Yeah. Um, the, much like, less. Our reformists are just tailists. Like we don't have reformists in the United so States. Like the most. Right, we we have yeah we have we have a couple of individual reformists, but they come oh, off yeah. as like super fucking radical because reformism yeah. is, is so degenerated here. It's just yeah. like I mean, I'm like, wouldn't it be nice if Americans had trade union consciousness? <laughs> like, well, yeah. I mean, even just even like Bernsteinite revisionism would be such an improvement over over the current contemporary American socialist project right now. Because at least Bernstein like was a critic of Marx, which means he had to understand Marx. Yeah, right. It, you don't even have Marxists that understand Marx. <laughs> right. I mean, it feels like when I talk to Marxists now, they want to talk about everything but that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like it's like I I think I mentioned this in the last episode is that Marxists and you and you you countered. I said Marxists are primarily just liberals, and you said if they're not, they're actually like uh, worse conservatives <laughs> who are just dumber, meaner liberals. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think that is kind of where we're at. Are there are there like some kind of weird post liberal hybridist? It's it's kind yeah. of. Anyway, on that note of optimism, because no world world is nothing but optimistic. Um, yes. Bringing uh, together our two strands of <laughs> forward-looking optimism. Yeah.